This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So, welcome to our evening. Um, this is my first time ever being the interviewer to an incredible person, and so I'm really excited to be here with Abby. So, thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, I know you said I'm incredible, and I learned from a few people over the past few weeks to not reject compliments, but to say Good. thank you, <laughs> which is really hard for me because growing up, um, we were always told to be humble, not necessarily in a humble way. There was something very not humble about being humble, if that makes a lot of sense. But that's very much what was there. And I sometimes subconsciously struggle when people are complimenting like there's this almost natural instinct that wants to be, oh no, or like start putting myself down. So I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to say thank you. I do want to say, however, that I have heard of you and your work for quite some time. And I've done quite a few things with Keshet and with Edit, who is a director, who is a very close personal friend. And I think what both what you are doing personally and with the organization and what the organization is doing as a whole is really amazing. I assume you were going to explain what Keshet yeah. is to everyone else. Um, but it's a real honor to be here with you and to talk with you and with all of you. So I'll, I will jump in so people know kind of what we're discussing because we yes. kind of have our own little <laughs> club up here. Um, so I am the Bay Area LGBTQ Education and Training Manager for Keshet. Keshet is a national organization where we work for LGBTQ inclusion in Jewish life. So I go around the Bay Area um, to JCCs, day schools, synagogues, you name it, any Jewish organization that's looking to be more inclusive, whether it's um, a bathroom, they want to change up some bathrooms and make sure that everyone has an accessible bathroom to use, Uh or if they're really looking at their programming and how is it accessible to everyone who walks through their doors. Um, Another piece of my work that I do here in the Bay Area is I work with a lot of our um, LGBTQ Jewish teens, and we do different programming for them. Um, throughout the year from Shabbatones, weekend retreats to... Do you want to... Ex- oh, yes, Shabbat- yeah, weekend a Shabbaton weekend retreat um, for teens that are affiliated or unaffiliated, but really looking for a community. Um, and we also try to work with uh, many of our Jewish organizations throughout the Bay Area to get our teens involved um, with everyone. So that's a big kind of yeah. overview of what Keshet does here in the Bay Area. Can I add one other thing that Keshet has yeah. been doing that I uh, tell people a lot about? And it's a resource that I use a lot. And they had this campaign. I don't know if they still have it, where they had these like safe space rainbow stickers. Mm-hmm. And I always, and I work with a lot of, not just Jewish, I work with a lot of organizations. And I would say the majority of organizations I work with are either Jewish organizations, LGBTQ organizations, and then a lot of kind of educational college campuses, high schools, and so on. And specifically for Jewish and for college campuses and for educational institutions, um, I would always tell that, if, and everyone, everyone is like, what could I do? Like people want to do something and knowing nonprofits, when they mean what could I do, they don't mean how do I make a multi-million dollar scholarship to help trans people. Like they usually refer to something more like less complex and more tangible. And that kind of campaign that Kesha had, I, I mm-hmm. remember a few years ago, they were really focused on it. I assume they still have these stickers, yes, so we do which still have were those. these like stickers that educators could put on their walls or on their doors on their offices, um, and I believe also resources that people can put online or Mm -hmm. links that people can do online, which I found to be extremely powerful. And it's something that everyone can do. I'm a big believer in doing small things. I believe even more in doing big things, but specifically for a start, if you want something tangible that everyone can do, doing something small, like putting out a sticker or like, I'm also a big fan of putting something out online. I believe that every organization, every corporation, regardless of where you stand or what your positions are in anything should have online and very visible 
visible resources. Definitely. And I'm really grateful to Keshet for creating these resources for a lot of other people. I think it's one thing about creating resources that LGBTQ people can take on and can help them. And it's a whole other thing when you create resources for people to create resources, which is so important. And I find it really important and something for me when I was coming out, and you may have seen this, um, is that when I could see a rainbow somewhere or I could see someone had a rainbow pin or there was a sticker saying, this is, this is a safe space for you, I still look for it places in San Francisco. If I see a rainbow sticker or a safe space sticker of you are safe in this space, I know that I'm okay. So if I'm being followed or if I know that someone is needing more support, I can go into that local business or I can go into that organization. And I always say with the teen work that we do or any work that we do within Keshet or any of our organizations, if we can make a safe space so when that person walks through those doors, no matter what it is they're needing, they know that they're safe there. That is um, an immeasurable gift that we can give to somebody. So I, I agree with you. Our stickers are out, um, and Keshet is doing all sorts of things from just the little tiny stickers that are usually... Um, on either office doors. We try to make sure that our kids see them as often as possible. And so our kids can know that they have a safe and inclusive space for everyone. And they not only just bring their, their own needs to the door, but they also bring their friends, which I find so important that we can inspire a community that way. So talking, and, and I assume we're going to get more into the personal parts of these stories, but something for me that was very helpful is before, and I talk a bit about in the epilogue of the book, um, which was when I started feeling that I'm kind of getting ready to come out, but I didn't feel ready to come out to everyone. And I had this conversation with a lesbian rabbi, who very much exist, who <laughs> um, was working at the Columbia Hillel at the time. And I was sitting with her and I finally like first I had to come out to her and I came out to her, which was really great and powerful and her reaction was just amazing. And then I was like, I want to talk to some friends, but I don't know who I can trust. Like, I mean, I at that point, most of my friends, and that was three years after I left the Hasidic community where no one was LGBTQ friendly, but at that point I was already most of my friends aware. But I still I was looking for someone who I know is out there, someone who knows what's going on, either someone who's queer themselves or someone who is a very outspoken ally. And she's telling me, and this was the um, kind of right after looking at the summer 2015. So you're talking just a few months after uh, the Supreme Court decision. And it was, some of you might remember, there was on Facebook, there was a lot of rainbow filters. You know, people used the rainbow yeah. filters on their profile picture. And she's telling me, go online, uh, go on Facebook and just look on friends. If you think someone is, you would love to talk to that friend, check if they use the rainbow filter. And if they did, you can probably know that they are someone you can talk to. And that is actually what I did. Now, I don't know how many people who just went, it was the cool thing to do, you know, whenever that was, like in June, I think it was, or yeah. May or June of 2015. It was cool, you know. It was very, you, you showed that you're woke if you had the rainbow filter right. on your profile. Yeah. I don't know how many people put that rainbow filter thinking, oh, there might be a friend of mine who is in the closet who might be struggling, and maybe they will see this filter and they will come out to me yeah. and they will be... But it did have that impact. And I know I'm not the only, I think, LGBTQ person who had that experience. And it's, I just use that as one of many example, examples on why these small things are so powerful. I always tell people, um, it was now Thanksgiving, right? And uh, on Twitter and on Facebook, and I, I actually said my family didn't celebrate Thanksgiving. I didn't even know what Thanksgiving was until about uh, until I was around 20. And I lived in New York. Um, but... Um, everyone was talking about, you know, all these family, like, uh, fights that are going to happen, specifically politically, and everyone was talking on how to deal with it, you know. At least in my bubble, everyone was talking on how to deal with their conservative, like, aunts and uncles and cousins or whatever. Um, and then I was telling it to a few people, and I posted about that as well, which is that you have to do speak up. You sometimes sit with cousins around a table or with an uncle or with grandparents and they say statements and you know very much that there's nothing you can say that that is going to change your mind. It's still important to say, hey, grandma, I disagree with that. 
And I don't think it's as much for them. Ignore them. And you don't have to go into a fight. <laughs> because in my experience, I don't know anything about Thanksgiving, but we do have holidays, specifically a Passover Seder, which I think is the Jewish version of, of a Thanksgiving dinner. And these conversations come up, and I know you're not going to change anyone's mind. But there could be a cousin or a friend who is sitting at a table, or a cousin who knows someone who is sitting at a table, and so on, who is struggling for themselves. And they see that you spoke up. They know that whenever the time comes and whenever they feel like they can talk to someone, they know that there are people, whether it's in the family or in the friend circle, someone who's going to speak up. And that is the same on Facebook. Like, say, tweet something, even if you know you're going to get a swarm of trolls coming at you. Ignore them. By the way, I'm a big fan of ignoring trolls online. But outside of that, there could be just one person being silent, who's not ready to come out yet, but they are going to pay attention to that. I know that from my own experience and from talking to people, we do pay attention of, oh my God, okay, I have this friend, even if it's an online friend, who I know I could talk to. And that is very powerful. So as you're saying all this, I am, I'm nodding and agreeing and going, yes, uh-huh, 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 because I've read the book. And I am going, yes, I know exactly what you're saying about the, the family dinners and having the conversations and ways in which you have to sit there and hold your tongue and say, well, that's not a, the way it is for me and you're not able to say that. So what I would like for you to do is I have a list that, you know, if you Google Abby and, you know, it's always my fun thing to do, like, oh, I'm going to Google somebody today. Let's find out. What is my name? But the first thing that comes up, it says... Author, activist, blogger, model, rabbi. That is just Wikipedia. I think it comes from Wikipedia. I know, but and being, so, Wikipedia is the quickest thing. I tried for a very brief period when my Wikipedia page was created. I tried to edit it for a while, but I wasn't careful. And I was open in like the talk pages for anyone who knows how Wikipedia works, that it was me. And you're apparently not allowed to do that because it's a conflict of interest to write your own page. So I was got blocked. So ever since I was just like, whatever, I don't care. So my but question yes. was, what are we adding to this list of all of these things? It says activist. It says author. What more? What, what is that? I can just read one word, but you're an author. Are one you- book? Oh, you asked me what it means to be an author. Oh, that's a tough question. My editor is actually in the room, so I don't know. Maybe she should answer that. But um, in a serious way, I do see author as being beyond just one book, both in the publishing sense. I really hope that this is not the last one, and I really believe that. And I already have a lot of essays, at least, of what more I want to write about, both memoir-wise and, and, and more academic or, or theological conversations. I have a lot. Um, but to me, author will include a lot of other things as well. I have 40, over 40 source sheets online that are public and open for everyone to see. And the majority of them are texts that I have to do the research on my own and put up, putting them together. They didn't, I mean, obviously the texts exist. They are age old, but I had to bring them together and publishing them and teaching them. I'm actually doing a teaching tomorrow, um, tomorrow at noon, actually, at the JCC, also that it's going to be exactly that. In a big way, in a big way, I see that as being an author of these resources. And they are combinations of uh, a lot of overlap, but a lot of like also different, like different unique kind of topics, mostly focused on gender and Judaism, gender and religion as a whole. Uh, I have one, one of my really proud ones are queer characters in the Bible, there's a lot of them, believe yes. it or not, a lot of them. Um, looking on, creating celebration, which is a big part of my of my message, I think, over the past year has been on focusing on celebrating LGBTQ people in our identities and not just tolerating, because I don't think we need tolerance. I think what we need is celebrating people. And tolerance to me sounds like, you know, I tolerate lactose or I don't. <laughs> not yep. about... It's not meant for people. So that has been, I have resources of them. So in, in a big way, that is part to me of being an author. I also wrote a lot of essays that you can find online. Um, some of the big ones, I just wrote something for Glamour magazine two weeks ago, or something for Elle magazine also like three weeks ago. But I've done before, I've done op-eds, I've done a lot of other things. I have I had blogs in three different languages by now, in Hebrew and Yiddish and in English. Um, uh, starting in 2012 when I started having internet access. Um, but ultimately, I think the biggest part of being an author to me really is about trying to find, I think it's one thing of telling a story and everyone has a story to tell, but I don't want this to just be an exotic story, which is what I think a lot about, because I feel like to some extent, yes, I 
my, the way I like to say it, my before and after picture are more radical than most people's. But it has nothing to do with me. It wasn't like wherever I was before I was born, I wasn't asked, hey, which family do you want to be born in? Like, do you want them to be dressed in 18th century clothes or in 20th century <laughs> clothes? I wasn't asked that and just got born into this family that dresses in 18th century clothes. It's just how it was. Um, so but what I think a lot of that the biggest point to me has to be is telling stories and writing about issues and topics and stories real and, and fictitious that people can relate to in a way that it helps everyone. When I think of this book, yes, there's this exotic story of growing up with 12 siblings in New York City, not speaking English, growing up, as I say, in the 18th century, living in a different continent for all intents and purposes. There's also the gender story. But at the same time, so much of it is just a human story. Yeah. When I think about gender dynamics, the way they describe in the book, I always, I, and I always encourage people, and I hopefully all of you are, have either read the book or you're going to buy the book right after this. If not, I'm going to be angry. Not really, don't worry. But um, what I want people to challenge themselves is when you read something about gender, and I think a lot about one of the very easy examples um, is to think of uh, the way I grew up in the Hasidic community when we think about gender and sexuality was that women are sexual objects who have no sexual agency and men are have sexual agency. They get turned on by seeing someone's elbow, um, but they are not sexual objects. And as a result, uh, one, one law, and I mentioned that last night as well, one law that people pick up a lot on is that women are allowed to watch men dance, but men are not allowed to watch women's da women dance. And if a man does see a woman dance and gets turned on, forget about doing something, just by getting turned on, it's the woman's fault. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a radical example, but step back for a second. These are not, these exist in society every day where we, it's a woman's responsibility to know to dress or not to dress a certain way. It's a woman's responsibility to be the housewife and how many, I work in politics and I can, I don't remember actually ever hearing a, a reporter asking a male politician uh, a question about how they balance their family life and their work when it's being asked to women all the time and so on. So, what I, what I hope that people see when they read this, when they read about uh, gender dynamics and read about the position of the woman in society or when they read about the way they treat LGBTQ people is not to just write it off as an exotic story, but think of, and, and, and I hope I did a good job at it, um, of being, these are also ideas that exist in our day-to-day -day lives, as progressive as you might think you are. I grew up in New York, which is one of the most progressive areas in the country. We're in the Bay Area, which I think is also relatively one of the most progressive areas in the country. I'm very biased towards New York, so, you know. I see, um, I'm a little half and half. I, okay. I lived in New York for a while, Bay Area. Yeah. You know. P point being, these exist in our day-to-day -day lives. So... To answer your question that I went on a tirade here, and, but very, very briefly, I think really being an artist, being able to tell a story that every person can find themselves in, regardless of the details of the story. I found that a lot within the book. I found that there were points for my own coming out story, story that I was very much relating to and going, I feel that way as well. And then there were points with I'm not going to give it away, but a first love and going, oh, 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 I know this feeling too. And it was really exciting to really just fall into the book. And it felt like I wasn't just reading a book. I was, I was having a conversation with you and I was listening to your story. So I would love for you to read a piece if you want to choose. I have one as well, but. I was going to read something else, but now you were talking about the love story and I'm not going to tell that story because I want you again, we want you all to buy the book and read about it now. But that story on its own, I believe is chapter 13. If I'm not making a mistake, give me a second. No, it's chapter 14. But I do want to read the end of chapter 11, which is the teaser to that. One evening, early in the semester, I was sitting in my usual place at the northern end of the study hall where the first-year students sat, when my gaze caught the sight of a student walking into the study hall. He was a tall, skinny guy with beautiful dark hair and light eyes. His clothes were neat and clean, and his posture and pace projected confidence. I had noticed him before. He was a year older than me and very popular, but not the best when it came to studying. 
which is probably why I haven't seen him in the study hall before. It was now the evening study session when we had come, when we had some freedom to study whatever we wanted. So I gathered my courage and walked over to him. His name was Chesky. Do you have a study partner? I asked. Well, no, but I'm not in the study hall most evenings, Chesky said. And I heard in his voice a sweet Canadian undertone. I don't care if he studied at all. I just wanted to be his friend. Either way, I responded, I just started studying Mishnah Barura on the laws of Sphira. Yeah, ignore that. <laughs> They're easy and fun. You should join me. Sphira is the seven-week period between the holidays of Passover and Shavuos. You want, you want me to, you, you want to study with me? He asked, surprised. Apparently, I already had a reputation as a smart student. But I think that was based more on my rabbinic clothing than on other students actually knowing me. Well, I just got her, and it's not easy to find a study partner in the middle of the year, I replied. Okay, sure, Chesky said. Let's do this. I felt a strange tingle. It was the beginning of a beautiful friendship and so much more. But that part would come later. And you all are going to have to buy the book to read that part. But it gets even more exciting, I would tell you that. Um... There is another part that I want to read. Okay. Did you have something that you want to follow up on, or should I just... Uh, go to your other part, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Okay. I'm just, there's parts in the book, I'm like, that is so relatable. I think everyone has had that tingle and that like excitement of, when am I going to see them again? And having the excitement of not only someone that makes you tingle, but a new friend and the opportunity to reach out and have yes. a connection with someone. I mean, I will tell for context, we had no sex ad whatsoever, not even abstinence, like nothing. No one spoken, never spoken about, never said anything. Uh, which is what I did. What I Another message that I think should be very clear from the book is that regardless of what you, if you decide not to tell teenagers something, uh, the human body going through puberty has a magical way of figuring out stuff. Uh, whatever your teachers or parents want you to or not. This is a part of the book that is very um, very personal, but also very powerful, I think. And I imagine that I wasn't the only specifically trans person, but also a lot of LGBTQ people as a whole, who throughout their lives have to find different ways of trying to deal with their identity. Um, I never really struggled with it in the sense of I always felt very comfortable and very clear that I was a girl. I just had to, I struggled with how to deal with it. Rather than struggling with what my gender was, it was, okay, how do I make sense and how do I deal with what's going on? And I had several different ways of trying to deal with it. And again, some of them are explained in the book and we'll let you read it. But there is one of them that I do want to talk about. I would not give up. But what could I do? I was always told that God can help with anything. Well, maybe it was time to turn to God. After all, I figured, since I was apparently the only girl in the world who was told I was a boy, only Derba Shefer, the creator, could help me. I wrote a prayer. Holy creator, I'm going to sleep now and I look like a boy. I am begging you. When I wake up in the morning, I want to be a girl. I know you can do anything and nothing is too hard for you. Please, I'm a girl. Why can't I look like a beautiful little girl? If you do that, I promise that I will be a good girl. I will dress in the most modest clothes. I will listen to everything mommy and Tati ask. And I will keep all the commandments girls have to keep in the best way possible. When I get older, I will be the best wife. I will help my husband start you to all day and all night. And I will cook the best foods for him and my kids. I will have the nicest Shabbos table and I will have as many babies as I can. God, you have enough boys. You do not need me to be a boy. I promise if I wake up as a girl, I will make up for it by having many boys who will be the most studied and pious boys. I want to give birth to girls when I'm older, but if you listen to me now, I'm happy to make an exchange. Let me be a girl, and I will be happy to have a big family with just boys. Oh, God, help me. 
Now, ignoring for a second the, the messed up ideas of what I had of what it means to be a woman and a housewife, which unfortunately weren't unique. Um, just a few years ago, it was after I left the community, but before I came out, and I remember talking with one of my sisters who was probably, I don't know, 31 or 32 and already had, I don't even know, five or 10 kids. I lost track a long time ago. Um, and I was telling her teasingly, you're just like a baby factory. And she's like, yes, that is what we're here for. Which is just, and to some extent, or at least some, I mean, I know some women in the community, community are really unhappy, but some are, that is all they know. Which is another part, but, but I want us to stop for a second. And yes, maybe people who, don't, who grow up in the secular world don't get the image that you have to have 15 babies, but how often is that still the message that we give to young girls that you still, you have a, a body and you need to put it to use by having babies, which is an extremely sad idea that that should be what someone thinks that this is what it means to be a woman. Um, I'm not going to go to what I feel right now. I think family is still really important to me and I think about kids a lot and I have a son as well. Um, but yeah, so that was uh, something that was very dear throughout my life. It was very dear. Sorry, not dear, but there. Pardon me, English is my fourth language, so uh, ignore you're, my you're accent. You're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but another thing that why this prayer is so powerful to me, and I mentioned before I have these source sheets online, and if anyone wants, I can tell you where they are later. Uh, but there's a prayer that I found only about five years ago, written in the 13th century by a rabbi, but ignoring the religious part for it. It's a prayer written in the 13th century and published in the 13th century by someone expressing the exact same feelings of wanting to be, some of the words that they're quoting is, cursed be the one who told, to my dad, who told my dad it's a boy. And if only I could be a girl and equating their experience to debt, which um, I think only made it more powerful because it, I, I guess it just shows it's a story as old as time and we have always been around and also that I like to think that my story is not as unique. You know, my life is, uh, feels different enough. And sometimes it's good to know that the same stories have existed in the 13th century. They have. And they I have. think it's the, the passage that you found in the book and of chapter nine. Oh, I'm should gonna, I read I'm, it or do you want to read well, it? Well, uh, no, I'll cry. So <laughs> I'll need you to read it. But I will, I will say this. So reading the book and really connecting to the idea of Am I normal? Am I sane? Am I crazy? Were the thoughts that I had when I was coming out? And do you want the page? I have it right here. Yeah, I, I think it's chapter nine of the book that I was reading. I don't know if it's chapter nine in the book. Here you go. Oh, it's chapter 15. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, what's the page? This one. One fifty-eight. Okay. Um, and so really looking at that and really understanding as you're coming out and knowing you're not alone and Yet at the same time, other people had that feeling of, am I crazy? And no, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm here. Our stories are very similar. Our stories are being repeated and repeated and repeated. And it's our job to be well, out there. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, Like yeah. this shouldn't, I'm trying to imagine, it's like I remember during the Women's March in 2017, there was this, uh, uh, I think she was a 90-year-old woman holding a sign that, uh, something that said something around the, I don't remember the exact words, but like I, when I was young, I thought that by now we're going to be fighting for the rights of cockroaches or like something like that. You know, we, we keep on feeling that like we shouldn't need to have these conversations anymore, yet we do. We do. We need to have those, those, as we said before, our rainbow flags on our Facebook page. And we need to share these stories and make sure that people know who we are. And I'm really proud when I get to put the rainbow flag up at any point, any time. And I'm a professional queer. So that's like, I'm rocking it all the time. And so when I was reading this, I, you read it because I just burst into tears. Um, <laughs> um as I like to do when I read books, when I read from the book at events, is I'm not going to give any before context or after. And if you have more questions, you can get it over there. I had nothing to lose. Rabbi Tagmoisha told me to start with two books in particular, both of, both of them uh, from the writings of Rabbi Chaim Vital, the 16th century mystic who had written down the teachings of Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Lion, the father of modern Kabbalah. One was The Treasures of Life, an Introduction to Mysticism. The other was The, doors of the Door of Reincarnation, 
a study of human souls and their place in the world. The phrase book was helpful, even enlightening, but it didn't offer it didn't offer any real clarity about my own life. I opened the second book and began to read. It was early on a Friday morning that winter when I reached chapter nine. The chapter focuses on the gender of souls and how different souls may enter different bodies throughout time. I was sitting at my usual place at a table mounted to the eastern wall of the study hall. There was only a few other students in the study hall at that hour, and the room was quiet. In front of me was my book on my bookstand, which I had been reading in the dim light, drinking a, drinking a cup of Taster's Choice as I turned the pages. In chapter nine, I read, At times, a male will, will reincarnate in the body of a female, and a female will be, in the ma- will be in a male body. The word jumping up from the page in front of me. I froze. I read it again and again and again. For the first time after 16 years, I found a text that justified my existence. Maybe I wasn't crazy after all. I stood up from my chair and left the study hall, walking outside into the cold air, into the forest, where I cried like a baby. So with you speaking about how the book is being relatable and telling a story and a connection, I felt reading this that our stories aren't the same, but our journeys are sometimes similar. I, mean, I believe that no two stories are ever the same, but that is to some extent what makes it the same. We all have our, different st- our own different stories, but the parts that are so relatable. And at the end of the day, when you dissect, I think, the human experience, we have, I'm a strong believer, and could be I'm naive, of we have more in common than what separates us mm-hmm. in general, but specifically true for queer people. I think within the queer community <clears throat> that there's a lot of times we'll have the coming out stories. And that is our way to bond with our chosen family of coming out stories and really kind of connecting in a little bit of heartache and connecting in maybe the funniest things you've ever heard. Um, Usually it was from my grandparents as things that I heard that were quite funny and we still giggle at. But I find those are the enlightening moments to have with our family and our chosen family. One of the things that you do have in the book and some of the things that I have been reading in your work is, you know, what, what is your Judaism like now? Huh. <laughs> an intense question. It is a very intense question. Well, if you ask my mom, she, someone showed her a picture um, of the first photo shoot I did after I came out. And I took, a, I think I looked terrible in that picture. But I'm, I was wearing a sleeveless dress. And she said, I look like a shiksa. Which, while I think for some people know it as sometimes used as a semi or totally derogatory term for non-Jewish women, in the Hasidic community and in Yiddish, it's actually used almost exclusively for Jewish women who are not dressed modestly. It's almost synonymous with whore. But specifically for Jewish women, specifically for... and and. Whatever, but I'll go and get to the context for too far. So I think when you ask about what my Judaism looks like, it depends who you ask. However, when it comes to me and what I decide to do, I couldn't care less what the people you ask are going to tell you, which I think is very important. Uh, in, in general, when it comes to spiritual practice as a whole. Now, I am very proudly Jewish. That's an understatement. I am very involved in the Jewish community. And I really believe that Judaism, specifically the progressive parts of Judaism, have messages that could really be helpful for us, for the Jewish community, for the queer community, but for humanity as a whole. Now, I, one of the things that I struggle, used to struggle with, and I'm, I'm saying it because I think it makes the point a lot stronger, is like growing up, I was always told, you know, the Jews are the chosen people and whatever, the kind of, some of them are explained, are, are written about in the book. Like my dad's beliefs are, I'm not, not saying that lightly, and my grandparents are all Holocaust survivors, but my dad's beliefs about the world sometimes put Hitler to shame. Like his opinions about everyone who's not Jewish and not religious are, yeah. 
Um, I also grew up, be, grew up being told that the Zionists are, are worse than the Nazis because the Nazis only try to kill our bodies and they're trying to kill our souls, whatever. So um, I'm telling um, certain things that I grew up with, certain messages were really bad. But what I have learned from that one of the most Jewish things that you can do, oh, sorry, no, I was, I was going to say that about the, the, the message of chosen people. I came to believe very much that every person, every human, human being is a chosen person if we choose ourselves and if we choose to do what works best for us. When I look on Judaism is I chose Judaism and that makes me and Judaism chosen for myself. I don't believe that there's any practice or culture or religion that's better than the others, but rather that we all have unique messages that are really powerful when we lean into them. I have experienced the progressive Jewish movements being a force for good beyond the Jewish world. I think a lot about immigration. And over the past summer, the people, and it makes me extremely proud of that, the people who have done some of the strongest organizing around immigration for, for a community that is predominantly not immigrants anymore, uh, where most of the Jewish community in the U.S. is mostly, uh, we all come from immigrants, but we have been here for quite some time. And the fact that I saw that Judaism became that source, and I myself have done a lot of organizing through like Never Again Action and through JFresh and other organizations, it shows me the source of good that it can be. I've also at the same time saw Judaism coming from my former community being used as a source of great evil and hands down in a bad way. But what I have learned and what came to me to be the strongest message of Judaism is looking on parts that work for us embracing them and realizing that that is the most Jewish thing that you can do. I grew up with a very black and white idea of what it means to be religious and what it means to be Jewish. Both, that's literally and metaphorically, like they actually wear black and white clothes and like whatever, but also, also a metaphorical idea of there is one way of doing it and that is the only way. And we would always make fun of all these people who cherry pick their Judaism as if it's something bad. But then you start studying Jewish history and you start realizing that it's what we have done throughout history. Um, I, I, to some extent, blame partially the Catholic Church on certain ideas that Orthodox Judaism has, which is quite interesting because when you look on traditional Judaism that lived in non-Christian countries like Sephardic and Mizrahi Judaism, they, as a whole, until about 100 years ago, did not have a lot of the rigid, rigid ideas that Orthodox Judaism has today. And this concept of picking and choosing and finding parts that work with you have been around throughout time. And it is the most powerful thing that you can do. And to me, leaning into that has been, I went from right after I came out, hating everything Jewish and wanting to celebrate Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar by eating only stuff made out of pork, which is like, yeah, you know, I think everyone, you don't have to be Jewish to realize that that is supposed to be bad. <laughs> From there and only after that, being able to look back and be like, but there's all these beautiful messages, like all the queer characters that we have in the Bible, messages of social justice, and then also messages of we can make mistakes, which I think is very important. Um, this idea in the Talmud, which is the sixth century kind of rabbinic law code, there's this idea that there's literally a, a passage that says that if the rabbis say something and God disagrees, then the rabbis are right, not God. It's a message that at the end of the day, it's about humanity. And this is what we have to do. And that kind of Judaism, I love. And that I'm really engaged with, involved with. It's a message that I want to teach more. And then I, I also am a big, there's a lot of things that just work for me. I love Shabbat. Friday night, Saturday night. I mean, how could you not? If you like growing up, it was actually quite torture because there was a whole, a whole long list of things you couldn't do. Yeah. Now, there's just a lot of things that you can do. You can go to a synagogue if you want to sing and dance, which is the synagogue that I go to, or you could not, and you could just go have a nice meal with some challah and fish and soup. Speak if you make a good matzo ball soup. I Sorry. do. Yeah. Oh, that. you do? Oh, oh yeah. my God. Okay. Right? Pardon yeah. us. We'll, we'll um, <laughs> talk about that later. Um, I think there's some messages that have been real powerful. And I want to share just one part about myself. So five years ago, before I came out, I was struggling with depression, with anxiety, with 
a feeling of I just want to be in bed and I don't want to talk to anyone because no one is going to see me for who I am anyway. So what's the point? And I know that that is unfortunately relatable to too many people. And my way of a bit of dealing with it at the time was through addiction, through alcohol and pills and a lot of other not so good things. And five years ago, I kind of like thankfully got a hold of myself, so to speak, and I became sober and I stopped doing anything. I stopped drinking, I stopped uh, um, um, doing any drugs and so on. And, and I'm going on almost five years by now. Hanukkah is going to be five years. I don't remember the exact date. I just remember Hanukkah. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And after that, though, surprisingly enough, my gender identity didn't disappear. And I was before I came out. So depression got even worse. And there was this one point where I realized that I need to have something that grounds me. I, would, I was at school at the time. I lived at a co-op, which was not a good idea because that also meant that there was always food and I never had to go out. And I, was, I realized that I was getting to this point where I would just go where the whole week, always, I would just go to class and then come home, take the food up to my room, wouldn't even talk to my housemates and not want to talk, not want to do anything and go out. And I had to do something to make that stop, to change that. And I took on doing Friday night, doing Shabbat on Friday night. And that meant lighting Shabbat candles and having Mr. Week since, as well as doing something, which meant either going to a service, going to a meal, or just going out with friends to a bar or to a movie. Didn't matter what it was, but having to do something. And I think in a big way that it saved me. I thankfully am really grateful that I haven't dealt with depression since I came out. Not since then, but since I came out, which is not a given. Um, for me, I think I was really lucky to have the support network to be able to, to be, to feel a lot better. But that is one of the things. And just one example of how I see my Judaism as a place where I can look at something and be like, this is such a cool custom. Let me take that on. And it helps me. And, and when I think about lighting Shabbat candles, it has very little to do with religion or with what I call the, the God that I grew up with, which I call the boogeyman in the sky who had all these opinions about me. And it's a lot more about something that works for me. It's a mental health practice that is really beautiful. Sorry, I feel like I gave, I gave like almost a sermon for a very simple it was a, question. It was a beautiful <laughs> sermon. And it was something that um, I didn't grow up Jewish. I chose Judaism. I found Judaism to be something so that... you are one of the chosen people. I am one of the you chosen chose. people. My yeah. Shema is Jewish. And my, my ways in which to uh, do Jewish... I don't necessarily have to be Jewish. Let's do Jewish. And it's a really nice reminder that this is where we are. And being able to freely have that, I think, is something that can be life-saving, literally. We talked Anyone? about this a little bit earlier. And when it comes to holidays and working with families and everything, a lot of us are going to be with family, um, for we were just with family for Thanksgiving. We have Hanukkah coming up, and we also have other holidays and New Year's, et cetera. Many, many things. And one of the questions I get a lot from families or people or even teens or young adults saying, I don't know what I'm going to do when I go home because my family doesn't know I'm out. Or the families say to me, Randy, I don't know what to do with this whole pronoun thing. I like the way that I question know, is phrased. I know, it's but it's, it's literally what I get. Yeah. And I take a big deep breath and I go, okay, well, let's think about this. One, we always talk about how we have the divine spark and that's my tethering piece to Judaism, that we all have that divine spark with us, within us and I find it so amazing, especially when I'm with middle schoolers or high schoolers and they look at me and say, like, I don't know if I'm right and I go, but you have the divine spark. How awesome is that? And they light up. My question for you, and we kind of talked about, you know, the hard conversations that we have at holiday meals or family gatherings, and we have to say something. What would you say for those who are wanting to say something? What's the best way for them to say something or some advice if they have a, maybe a newly out family member or they're newly out themselves yeah. with their family? Um, I want to start with, I am a big believer, and sorry if it sounds selfish. Actually, I'm not sorry if it sounds selfish. But I'm a big believer that there's no family if there's no you. 
there's no friendship, if there's no you, you can't be a part of, and I have that with people who I, and, and I work with a lot of the way people grew up religious, and you're like, but I, I can't come out, like my life is in shambles and I pretty much am not living, but if I come out, how's my family gonna react? And I'm like, you're saying to yourself, you don't have a life, your life is a shambles, you can't really live. So the, the question usually is not, oh, do I wanna not come out and not be who I was and be part of the family, or do I wanna be out and not be part of the family? Like, as if that is the choice. The choice that really is, do you wanna be? And there's only one way to be, which is to be who you are and to be out. I know for myself that is true, that like my, my question wasn't, oh, could I be, could I stay religious and be part of my family without coming out? No, because I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be me. There wouldn't be a, and, and that is, I, I really believe that there's no you if you don't exist. And I actually, talking about the source sheets again, they're my babies, I really like them. I do have a whole source sheet focused on that as well. And there is that message, I know, in Judaism, but in, 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 even in religion a lot, which is like, we have to be, whole with ourselves to be able to be anything, to be able to be whatever that is leaning into the divine spark, if that is what people relate to or whatever that is, to be part with our families. And I think that is first a message that the families also need to hear first and foremost. Another, another, another two details that I want to say, which is important for families specifically, is not to take any blame for it, which happens a lot. I know what happened to my mom. She always blamed herself for everything, for me not being religious which I don't think it's her fault, and I also don't want to give her the credit. <laughs> but I, no, I really don't think it was her fault, and that is also important for family members to realize. And then I think the most important thing for both family members and for LGBTQ people ourselves is speak and listen, which is, I don't know how your family is going to react, but no one knows, and they can always surprise you. But we need to give them the benefit of the doubt, at least put it out there. And more importantly, sometimes for families to listen, you have a cousin, a, a child, an uncle, an aunt, a, a, a sibling, I don't know, who uses pronouns that you have never heard before, first listen to them. Ask them what the pronouns are, try it out. I will be the first person to admit it's not easy. And I think also another thing that maybe is not as popular in the LGBTQ community is to tell people not to feel guilty when they make mistakes because it's going to happen inevitably. But you do it enough times and it becomes normal. Listen to people. Listen to their struggles. Listen to what they have to say and do your best to live up to that. And you will realize that it's not as hard as you think. I think that is what comes to mind right now. But yeah. Yeah, it's really good to know, you know, Again, we are not alone in this struggle. As I was reading the book and learning more and more about your family and your, you and your precociousness at school. Um, I was sometimes a are, troublemaker. You were a teenager. Wow. Just, I, if, if you were in my class, it would be <laughs> very interesting. Ironically, though, at school, I was never, and now when I think back and, more. I was never considered the big, teen, the big troublemaker, but also I think sometimes, and, and I know masculinity and femininity are totally stereotypes and made up, but it, I was never, I used to be bullied for being too feminine, though I never took it as a bullying because I was like, well, you're saying I'm like a girl? Thank you. <laughs> like, good, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. amazing. Let's talk about that. But um, the, when I did make the trouble, I was usually behind the scenes. I was what would be stereotypically kind of like the... the feminine way of making trouble. Having been a middle school teacher, I say that I think that teenagers, boys and girls are just as tr making trouble, but girls tend to be more passive aggressive. So that was kind of, if you read the book, you can see that most of my troubles as a teenager, and, and I know it's a stereotype, it's not always accurate, but so, so in a big way, I never registered as a troublemaker because when I was always in boys only schools and everyone else was making trouble with like starting fights in the study hall physically and punching <laughs> and whatever these kind of things and I was coming up with recipes on how to create disaster which I'm not going to talk more about but you can all look it up and read it um it, it was a lot more it was a lot it was more low-key highly disruptive <laughs> way of making trouble so which I think is partially why I like got away with it a bit more anyway 
Back one to of your the question. things, back to my question, one of my questions was for those in the community, whether it's family or anyone in, that you grew up with, um, was there anybody that surprised you with support? One of my siblings, actually, first. Um, so I have one, I have two siblings that I talk to. One of them I'm really close with, and, and, and I knew he is a very open-minded person and whatever. So yeah, I expected that. Another one of my siblings did surprise me, and I can't say their name. Thankfully, there are 12 of them, so I'm not outing them. Um, and it's not the one that I would expect that I would have expected to continue talking with me. And it's very private, and we talk on the phone, and we don't, uh, I don't think they would want to be seen with me in public, but it's still, it's still really powerful. And that has definitely been um, quite a few of my cousins. So I am attached with two of my siblings. I'm attached with about 10 to 15 of my first cousins. And I always like to focus on the silver lining, which is the reality that I have two siblings that I'm close with and 10, 15 first cousins. How many of you have more than 15 first cousins? <laughs> Not, Not many. many. <laughs> Not many at all. Now, for me, it's two siblings out of 12 or 22 if I count in-laws. Actually, 23. Sorry. My, sus- my sister just got married. Um, and cousins, I have a few hundred first cousins, literally a few hundred. My mom has uh, eight siblings and my dad has 10. And they all have, most of them have 10 plus kids. So, yeah, it is what it is. Um, a lot. But, but I like to focus on the positive part. And some of these cousins were quite surprising. Like not, I wouldn't have, and there's all different kinds. Like there are some of my cousins who say things that I would never tolerate from strangers. Um, like the kind they, like I have cousins who would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you sound stupid or you sound crazy or something is wrong with you. But it's family and I will talk with you. If they, my approach when it comes to family and my siblings and with uh, close relatives are, if you talk, if you are okay to talk, with, to talk with me, I will talk with you. I might disagree with you on a lot of things and I might not really hate some things that you say, but I will talk with you. And I really think it's important. So that have been... And then in the community, there was a surprisingly few people, meaning not a lot, but more than I would expect, that have been really great. I just shared yesterday, and I shared at the event as well, but also online, and you can all, if anyone in the room reads Yiddish, I assume not, but um, I maybe I'll translate it, but there was... Um, on a Yiddish, Hasidic Yiddish forum, there was a review that I just learned after that that's actually written by a woman, um, written by a Hasidic person that was extremely positive about the book. And I constantly, it constantly keeps surprising me, which I think also is like part of my belief that has, mo, the, the majority of Hasidic people on their own are just people who are, some of them are really brainwashed to some extent, they're really like the world is very narrow for them, but the majority of people are nice people when you give them the opportunity. And I keep being positively surprised by people, by former classmates. Um, and like specifically, it's where did they all ended up in Montreal? None of them actually grew up there, but there's a few of my classmates who live in Montreal now who, um, and I've been to Montreal a lot of times and they're always super nice and they want to hang out with me while ma- the majority of my classmates live in Muncie. And I don't think there are three people who live there who talk to me. But it's yeah. just weird. I don't know if it has something to do with can- Canadians being nice. I don't know. But they're not real Canadians. They've just been living there. I don't know. <laughs> Regardless of the point, they are people who have surprised me and they constantly are more and more. And I, it brings faith. I, I get more encouraged by one nice person than discouraged by 10 really rude ones. Again, could be I'm naive, but I like to believe that these are actually, this is humanity. Um, and there have been, yeah. And you, you can also look online for anyone. And you, whenever, if you go to my social media, you will see every now and then, whatever it's in Yiddish, which as we have established, none of you speak, but um, there are also some, you can usually tell if it's a very broken, very, very broken English. It's most likely someone who grew up Hasidic. And they are a surprising amount. Again, not many. I would assume it's not more than 10% of the Hasidic community. But I like to focus on the silver lining. I like to focus on the positive. And are you still working with footsteps? Um, I'm a member of Footsteps, yeah. have been for seven, uh, close to eight, seven and a half years by now. So Footsteps, uh, for those who don't know, is an organization. It's a nonprofit, a kind of Jewish nonprofit based in Manhattan that is supporting those who are leaving the ultra-Orthodox community. And I don't even know how to say that strongly enough of what it means growing up in the ultra-Orthodox community other than growing up in the 18th century, growing up in a different culture, and to give examples, whatever it was, pop culture, music, or Thanksgiving, 
it wasn't, uh, Thanksgiving wasn't a holiday we, that we didn't celebrate. And I agree, the Hasidic community is probably not the only one who doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving. But they might be the only community in the U.S., and I'm not 100% sure of that, but at least one of the only ones, where you have kids and teenagers that don't know that that exists. Um, Seinfeld, the most Jewish show in the 90s, wasn't a forbidden show. It was something that we were not allowed, that, that we didn't even know existed. The band that I was not allowed to listen to was a band called the Miami Boys Choir, which is an ultra-Orthodox boys-only choir, and they were singing in English, God forbid. So we were not allowed to listen to them. The, the, the Beatles, or I don't, who, who was the popular bands, and who was the popular singers of the bands in the 90s? I don't even know, probably till this day. But we didn't even know that they exist. So that is kind of the, the ultra-Orthodox community. So when people leave... It's a combined struggle, a cultural, not legal, but cultural struggle of being an immigrant from a different country and from a different century. In New York City. It, in a, but uh, no, yes, but yeah. no. We don't, it, it, to some extent it only makes it worse because we grow up in New York and people expect you to know because to be in New York and people don't give you the benefit of the doubt that you have. To give you, for example, um, when I started school at Columbia and the school that I kind of uh, specifically specific school that went to Columbia is called the School of General Studies, and it's specifically for non-traditional students. So people come from different backgrounds. And for all of their students who didn't grow up speaking English, they make you take a placement test for English to see if you have to take immediate English classes and so on. And they're really helpful with it. And there was another friend of mine who also grew up Hasidic, and we started school at the same time. And he mentioned to them that he didn't grow up speaking English, so they made him also take and he had to place in. For me... I didn't say anything, and it didn't, it didn't even occur to them that and my English was now far, far from the academic level that it should have been on, but it didn't make me take any of the cl these classes because they didn't assume that I didn't speak English. I mean, you grew up in New York, right? You probably did. To such an extreme that they have, uh, there's, a, there's a core requirement, kind of a class that's about writing called university writing that everyone has to take. And they are specific sections that are meant for international students. And I had to petition them to let me take that class because they were like, what do you mean? You grew up in New York. What do you, you don't need this for international students. So that is a big issue that a lot of people face. And then the, the, the double-edged sword that happens is that the second you leave, you're not in some quiet suburb somewhere. You are in New York City and you got to not just navigate life in the outside world, you got to navigate life in the city that never sleeps and the biggest city in the U.S. and figure yourself out. It's an extreme struggle. And uh, at the same time, like we don't get a normal education. We don't know. Most of us don't know how to dress. I freaked out when I walked into a Starbucks for the first time, legitimately freaked out. You don't know anything. You don't know the brands of the milk in the grocery store. And Footsteps is this organization that does, sorry, life-saving work, literally. To give you examples, the, the unfortunate, and uh, is everyone okay if I talk about suicide for a second? Okay. Um, um, unfortunately, the rate of suicide amongst people leaving the Hasidic community is extremely high. It has been really high before Footsteps came in. And, but thankfully, Footsteps has had, they've had three, which is three too many throughout their almost uh, 15 year of existence. But over the past, over five years, since they started implementing programs, actually more than five years, yeah, specifically focused on that. And specifically in 2017, there was in one month, there were five or 10, like a really big amount of suicides from people who have left the Hasidic community, but none of them from footsteps. And they haven't had a single suicide since, while the rates of suicide of people who leave, who don't join footsteps, has been growing, going up extremely high in the communities, ignoring it, which is, it's a whole other conversation to be had. But when I'm saying they're life-saving, it's not a metaphor, it's literal. And obviously, life-saving, I wouldn't be able to read, to write a sentence in English, forget about writing a book in English. And I wrote a whole book myself. My Yeah, we, my editor, we did a lot of editing back and forth, but I wrote a whole book. I actually think I wrote like 350 or 400 pages that ended up being cut down, obviously. But um, I, I would not have been able to do that without footsteps. Um, and I am still very involved. I've done a bit more than just being involved as a member. I've done their peer mentoring program. I've done a lot of, um, uh, a lot of other events for them. Um, and with them, and it's probably the my closest friends are mostly coming from footsteps. Um, yeah, 
So your short answer, again, I feel like you're asking simple questions and I give you whole essays as an answer, but I am still very much involved. And um, I always tell people, if you ever find yourself at the end of the year, you know, you need a few more dollars to write off, or if you just feel generous, they are a good organization to donate to, as well as Cash It. <laughs> um, their website also um, is footstepsorg.org. That's always a quirk. Quirk. It's not footsteps.org, but footsteps.org. I believe Keshet is keshetonline.org. Keshet online. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're both very worthy organizations. Just want to end on the, your silver lining. The fact that you can find so many, and for me, it's the you attract more flies with honey than you do vinegar. And really finding that silver Actually, lining. I think you don't attract any flies with vinegar. vinegar. The tank should be re- <laughs> re-evaluated. But yeah. But it's... Uh, point being, point I being, think you don't attract anyone with anger. No, yeah. not at all. And I, I think that's something that we can take with us this evening and in our hearts to really reflect on that and share that with everyone. Thank you. Thank I think you. that's a perfect, Thank perfect you place you for... To- everything and for being here and for talking to me um thank you all for being here i want to say one final thing i think each and every one of you by just being here is doing some amazing work so much of just showing up and i hope that you will go home and talk to people about this i see it as this means that i actually just got to talk to four to eight times as many people because I hope that each and every one of you are going to mention parts of it. It's going to be with you because that is the most important thing. That this is, it's not just about the people that we talk to. It's about changing the culture. It's about bringing the awareness to establishing a certain reality of community where people like us, people who look like us, people with our experiences, and people like all of you are the reality. We are the reality. We always have been. We just have to make that more visible and more known. So thank you all for just being here. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you. you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.